Well, good morning, family. What a delight to be here on the very first day of 2017. Can't even believe I'm saying that. 2017. Wow. But His grace has planned it all. We just sang the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that reached down and rescued us. We have just come through Christmas. I hope that you guys had a great holiday, a good a good Christmas time together with family, friends. You know, uh, years ago, uh, some of you know that I spent a few years as a youth pastor around here, and it was one of my many little traditions that I did every year. I would give the kids a Christmas IQ test. And so I thought this morning, since you guys are just it's, it's fresh in your minds, I would give you just a couple of sample questions to see how you do. I could embarrass you by asking you to go public with your answers, but I won't. But, um, you know, just for, for honesty's sake, you might want to grab a pencil and jot the answer down so you can't, you know, just, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> All right, just here we go. Question number one. You ready? I realize some of you guys are like, I'm on Christmas break. I shouldn't have to think. Sorry. How did Mary and Joseph get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Oh. Camels. Please don't shout out the answers. They walked. A donkey and cart. Mary rode a donkey and Joseph walked. Metrolink. Or the Palestinian version of that back in the first century. Or we don't know. Write down your answer. Okay, the answer is F. We don't know. Oh, ouch. Oh, sorry. Uh, those of you who didn't get that. Let's try another one. What did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? Come back after the Christmas rush and I should have some vacancies. Or... I have a stable you can use, or there is no room in the inn, or both B and C, or E, none of the above. Ah, and some of you are waiting, where's F? There isn't an F, and so what's the answer? E, none of the above. Oh, some of you got that right, some of you didn't. If you look in the scriptural accounts, no innkeeper is mentioned. There is no innkeeper. All it says is they laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. No innkeeper. So we don't know what he said. See, the reality is that in the Bible, by the way, we only have the Christmas story in... Here's here's another question, not a multiple choice. There are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of them tell us the Christmas story? Yeah, two. Matthew and Luke. And the reality is, most of what you and I have in our minds as to the story of the birth of Christ, at least a good bit of it, comes from every place except the Bible. Come from the little Christmas specials you watched on TV or the children's books you read or the songs that we grew up singing 
And we've learned all of these details that aren't in the Bible at all. It's the songwriters and the storytellers and the playwriters and the artists and the movie makers who add lots of detail trying to help us out by bringing the story to life, but they've put into our imagination all kinds of things that aren't there. And so in my lifetime, I've heard the Christmas story told from the vantage point of the shepherd boy, the innkeeper's wife, the littlest angel, the drummer boy, the lamb, and the donkey. And, of course, none of those characters even exist in the Scripture. But today, I want to perhaps blow your mind a little bit with another look at Christmas. Christmas, a passage that you probably never thought about as being part of the Christmas story, but it is, and what it says comes from and gives us, I think, the most amazing perspective ever on the Christmas story. You ready? Go to the book of Hebrews, if you would, book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 it says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, just let those words sink in for just a second. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, the words that are about to follow are the actual words of Jesus Christ at Christmas. The next few verses take us into the, the courts of heaven, the very hallowed ground, and let us listen in as Jesus, God the Son, speaks to God the Father as He is about to, to be incarnated, to, be, to, to leave heaven and to come into the world as a baby. Isn't that awesome? Did you even know that was here? What did Jesus think about Christmas? Why do we mess with, you know, the littlest angel and the donkey and wonder what they think about Christmas when the Bible tells us what Jesus thinks about Christmas? What did he say? Let me read the verses. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Three things I just want us to note briefly this morning about what Jesus says in those few verses. By the way, just for your something just to tuck away, these verses come from Psalm 40. God put them there in the Scripture over a thousand years before Jesus said them in heaven The prophet David, and Peter says that in the book of of Acts, that David is a prophet, and as, as he did in Psalm 22 where he puts words in Jesus' mouth on the cross, 
and other things. He, he depicts the whole scene of the cross a thousand years before it happened. Read that in Psalm 22. In Psalm 40, he says this is what Jesus is going to say. The, the Messiah, the promised one, is going to say before he leaves heaven and comes to earth. He didn't say it that way. He just said the words. And here, the book of Hebrews says those words were actually Jesus' words. Now, three things about what Jesus said very quickly. Jesus describes our situation and it's not good. He says, in sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. As Jesus speaks to the Father, He says, you haven't desired sacrifices and offerings. He goes in verse 6 and He says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. We can't tell that in the English, but in the original there are four different words here used for sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. And those four words encapsulate, they encompass all of the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament law mandated all kinds of things and sacrifices and those four words kind of take all of them and and says, of all of these sacrifices, God doesn't desire them. When you think about it, that's the most unusual statement. Because wasn't it God that set up the Old Testament sacrifices? Yes. Then why does He say you don't desire them? And that you find no pleasure in them? If we back up the train just a little bit to before we started in verse 4, it gives us a little insight into it. Verse 4 it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, he's not saying that God says that the sacrifices and the offerings are bad. It's just that ultimately all of those sacrifices and all those offerings don't solve the problem. They are impotent. They are incapable of taking away the sin of man. They can't pay for our sins. And even if you go back up just a little bit farther back into verse 1, he says that they are incapable of making you and me perfect. See, even if you could wipe out and take, if you could take away all the guilt and all the penalty for every sin you've ever done, it didn't, still didn't take care of your sin problem because you and I are still addicted to it. We are still sinners. We wouldn't be perfect. And when we're not perfect, we can't go into the presence of God. And so we're still in a really bad situation. Because you and I were made, we were created to have relationship and fellowship with God. And so if all of those sacrifices were impotent and incapable of taking care of the problem, then why in the world did God set them up to begin with? Good question. The answer is, we go back to verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, let me put that into what he's saying. He's saying that they were the, the, all of the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow. Now, The shadow of a house 
lets you know that there's a house there. But it doesn't provide any shelter. The shadow of a Big Mac (laughs) can let you know that food is nearby, or at least by some definitions of food. Food is nearby, (laughs) but it can't feed you. And what he's saying is that the law and all the sacrifices in the law were a shadow that lets you know that there's something coming that's real, but the shadow is ineffective for taking care of the problem. They were a shadow that couldn't save us, but they pointed towards something that was coming that could. That's what the shadow was. Also in verse 3, he gives us another clue why God set up this, this sacrificial system. And that is, verse 3, he says, But in these sacrifices there is reminder of sins every year. What he's saying is that every time that you came and offered a sacrifice, it was a reminder of the accumulating debt of our sins. It's like having a loan. But all you can do is make the most minimal of payment on the loan that just covers the interest and gets the the debt collector, keeps him at bay. But it's a reminder that the loan is still there and you have no rest because it is there and it's still accumulating debt because you're not able to keep up. He says that's what the sacrifices were. They were a reminder every year that the sin problem is still there. It was a reminder of that. It was also a reminder of our greatest need. You realize that most people go through life oblivious to their greatest need. Because of that, we focus on careers and houses We chase dreams. We pursue pleasures. We long for love and we long for companionship and we go about busying ourselves fixing problems and fixing our cars and seeking safety and seeking security and we endure heartbreaks and we endure disasters. We go through all the dailies of life and all the stuff of life. We're caught up with all kinds of problems and all kinds of priorities and neglect the most important. The most serious, the most important, the most urgent issue that you and I and every person on this planet has is the problem of being sinners who will stand one day before the Holy God. That is the most serious the most vital issue and problem and concern for every person on planet earth, but most of them don't know it. They don't think about it. And we're just busy going along with everything else, like people in a house where carbon monoxide is building up in the house and they just go about their stuff and they're making plans for Christmas and wrapping presents and doing all kinds of stuff and not unaware that they are dying for lack of air. And so it is 
with so many in this world. Frankly, most of us are much more concerned about being stopped by a policeman for a traffic violation Now we might get a ticket than we are about facing God's wrath towards sinners. But the Bible is perfectly clear that it is no small thing. The writer of Hebrews here later in this chapter will say this, it is a fearful, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what moved that early American preacher Jonathan Edwards in that sermon, Sinners in in the Hands of an Angry God. Which people today of modern sensibilities say, oh, we don't really worry about such things, for we know God is a God of love. God is a God who who will hold us accountable for our sin. Jesus knew we were in a desperate situation. And as He prepares to come to earth, He says, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire. There is no religious system that will save anybody. There is nothing anybody can do to save themselves. And as Jesus prepared to come to earth, that was His words. (laughs) See? He knew that we were in a desperate situation. We needed a real and a permanent solution to sin. Jesus came to earth because of our need. Second thing that Jesus points out in verse 5, He says, a body you have prepared for me. Our sin requires payment In the chapter before, the writer of Hebrews quotes again from from the Scriptures. And in chapter 9, verse 22, he says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The payment required for sin is death. But as this passage points out, again, we read it there in verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats, animals cannot take away sins. Sin requires death, but the death of an animal can't pay for the sin of a human. Human sin is a capital offense and it costs a human life. And so in verse 5, Jesus says, A body you have prepared for me because God had a plan that would satisfy. The shadow of the sacrifices and offerings looked toward that Offering that would satisfy. But it required a human. It required God Himself to take on human flesh. It required man to be able to die and to be able to die for the sin of man, but it took God to be able to die that death to have infinite value, infinite worth. And so Jesus becomes a man. Not to get to know us, although Hebrews points out earlier that there's value in the fact that Jesus knows us 
intricately. Jesus didn't come to be a good example. Jesus didn't come to be a good teacher, though He was both of those things. Jesus didn't come just out of curiosity to see, I wonder what it would be like to be a human. Like we sometimes used to think when we played with our little action figures or dolls or whatever toys you played with, you think, I wonder what it would be like to be able to get down in there and play with it. It wasn't that. Jesus came to die. To be the perfect sacrifice that would accomplish what all of those other sacrifices and any religious system, none of those things could accomplish. Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. The purpose of the manger was the cross. And it wasn't plan B. A last second workaround where God goes, oh, I have set up this whole other system, but it didn't work. I really didn't like it. It wasn't good. It wasn't a second thought that came around from a failed plan A. It was a plan set before the foundation of the world. As the Apostle Peter writes, he says, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus came to earth because He was our only hope. There's a third thing that Jesus says. He says there in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus leaves heaven freely. He came to die willingly. He chose and determined to do the Father's will, the Father's plan. And the Father's will was that He would die Unlike animal sacrifices that you had to lead by a rope and you had to hold and tie down to kill because they didn't want to die, Jesus chose to die. Christmas was all about death. In the words of Jesus, I have come to do your will. And He knew exactly what that will was. Listen to Jesus' words after He was incarnated. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes it. He's speaking of His life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. You remember there in the Garden of Gethsemane just before they came to arrest Him and Jesus as He prayed, He says, Father, if You're willing, take this cup from Me. Yet, not My will, but Yours be done. And He submitted to being arrested, to being tortured, to being crucified. And then even on the cross, it says He gave up the ghost. He gave up His Spirit. As He said, no one takes it from Me, 
but I lay it down. He did it by His own will. Jesus came because He was concerned about us and because He obeyed the Father. The, this passage goes on and says something of the marvelous result of Jesus coming to earth. Actually, he has quite a bit to say, but verse 10 says, And by that will, the Father's will, we have now been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His perfect sacrifice has perfected us. It uses that, that very word a few times. Here's the point. Jesus Christ has accomplished our salvation. There is, when you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we trust Him as our Savior, we are saved. We are perfected. We are sanctified. All those words show up in this passage. Our sin is paid for. Past, present, and future. We will be able and we will go into the presence of God, into heaven, not because of our merit, not because we're good, but because Jesus Christ was perfect and He was the perfect sacrifice, being both God and man. And His sacrifice has perfected us. There's nothing that He needs to add to it there is nothing that you need to add to it. There is nothing that anyone else needs to add to it. It is, the Scripture says, a gift of God that we receive. That's all we can do is receive it or reject it. <laughs> but we cannot add to it. Jesus Himself said it on the cross. In His last words, He said, It is finished. The Greek word, Tetelestai means paid in full. That is awesome stuff. That should be something we go woohoo about. See, there are all kinds of people who think we need to add to it. You know, we need to do this and do that. Jesus made a down payment and we have to keep making payments. And we do everything we can in this life to make more payments and then maybe even after this life we go to purgatory and we pay more there. Sorry, that is not in Scripture. And it's an, it is an affront and an offense to the God who became one of us in order to die and who said it is paid in full. We receive it. It's a big theme in this passage. Verse 12, it says, When Christ had offered for all, for all time, a single sacrifice for our sins. Down in verse 14, it says, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See? One sacrifice for all, for all time. That is what we remember as we come to the table this morning. is the perfect and the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Really, just two applications for this message this morning. 
as we look at this, as we read about what was on Jesus' heart and mind as He came to earth, was our need. And His purpose. He was the solution. And the will of God, obedience to the Father. How do we apply it? Two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope what you see and what you understand is that God loves you so much. And you already know deep in your heart, you already know you're a sinner. You have messed up. You've done so much wrong. And understand, there's nothing you can do to overcome that. But Jesus knew your need. And He came to meet that need to be your Savior. Trust Him today. Receive His gift of salvation. For all of us who know Jesus Christ, What's the application for us? I think it's spelled out so beautifully and clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my favorite verses, actually a couple of them, verses 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we know that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus Christ lived a purpose-driven life long before anybody thought to write a book called that. He said, I have come to do Your will, O God. What should be our response for the love and the grace and the salvation that we've received through Christ? He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised again on their behalf. Our response should be, I have come to do Your will, O God. It's tragic that many of us as believers who know All of the things we have just read and said and talked about. Yet our first response every morning as our feet hit the floor is, what am I going to do today? What do I want to do today? Our first thought as we step into a new year, into 2017, is, what do I want to do this year? Instead of our first thought, being as Jesus' words when He stepped into this human life. He said, I've come to do Your will. Our first thought ought to be, Lord, what is it You want me to do in 2017? What is it You want me to do this week? What is it You want me to do tomorrow? You will probably change your attitude in school. It will probably change your attitude at work. It will probably change the attitude that the way you treat each other at home and how you view your neighbor and what you do with your money, what you do with your time. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. It is actually unimaginable that you loved us so much that God the Son, that you, Father, sent your Son. We don't understand the Trinity, much less the Incarnation. None of it. But that you loved us so much that you stepped into your creation to meet our deepest need. To take care of our sin. Thank you. In these next moments as we come to the table and we partake of the bread and partake of the cup that picture very graphically the cost of our salvation. May it move us to respond in worship. And not just worship that sings songs, though that's good. and Not just worship that says thank you, that that's good. Not just worship that says praise God, though that's, those are all good things, but Father, may it move us into the worship that Paul said is our reasonable service of worship. That we give ourselves to You as living sacrifices to say, Lord, what is it You want me to do? May that, Lord, be our heart as we come now to this table. In Jesus' name.